0: Hey, we've been going through the book of Acts. I know it seems like since the church started, but it really hasn't been that long. Uh, And we are in uh, uh, chapter 14. And last week, uh, we finished with the first seven verses of 14. And today, we're going to finish really the rest of 14. And we're going to see how the first missionary journey actually completes. Uh, uh, If you know, if you remember, Paul and Barnabas took off from Antioch. And they have gone to city after city. There's kind of a pattern that has uh, happened. They go to a city, they preach the gospel, some believe, they get persecuted, they go to the next city. Uh, They preach the gospel, some believe, some don't, they get persecuted, they move on. And so this pattern has kind of continued, uh, pretty similar, a little different in each town, but uh, but kind of similar. And we're going to see kind of the similar thing today, but really there's a a lot of really great things in these uh, 20 verses uh, so let's go ahead and read uh, the entire passage, and then we'll come back and kind of uh, take it apart. I like to do that because, uh, uh, you know, somebody asked one time, you know, why do you read all the scriptures twice every week? Well, first of all, it keeps me from having to come up with that much more material. Uh, second of all, uh, second of all uh, I think it's really good to just read the Word of God, let it speak for itself, see it in context, and then we can go back and kind of see it piece by piece. But I think sometimes when we take it apart piece by piece first, we really never get the full context of it. So let's read chapter 14, verses 8 through 28. Here's what it says. Now it lies true there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven And fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. I want you to see kind of where they're at. And what's happening, I know I've showed you this map in the last couple of weeks. But just to stay up with what's happening, today we're here in Lystra. And they are going to, in the passage today, go to Derby. There's very little about their ministry there at Derby. They're going to preach there and they're going to make some disciples. And then they're going to go back. And uh, if you are looking for all the names of the cities going back, uh, we don't see them listed quite the same because it lists more regions. You'll see the region of uh, Pisidia which is here and the region of Pamphylia which is here but basically what they do is they go to Derby, they turn around they go back to all the places they went and except for going back to the island of Cyprus which we'll talk about in a few minutes they go back to the church at Antioch in Syria which is the church they left from remember there's an Antioch here but it's not the same one all right so they make kind of a full round trip So let's look and see what happens first in this passage. First we see a miracle takes place. A miracle takes place. Let's go back to verses 8 through 10. Remember, here's what it says. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now think about this for a minute. Here's this man who was crippled from birth. Everybody knew it. Never seen him walk, never seen him stand. He has never used his feet. He does not know what it feels like to have his weight supported by his legs. It's never been on him. He has never in his whole life known what it was like to feel his legs move and support his body weight. This is something he's never experienced. He's never been able to balance himself other than from the torso up because he's never walked on his legs before. This man who's crippled from birth has never walked and Paul says with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now why do you think Paul kind of yelled at him? Uh, Do you think he wanted to make sure that his legs heard him? I mean, is that the reason? Of course not. The man was right there. Paul wasn't doing this for the benefit of the man, and he wasn't yelling his legs into submission. He was doing that for all the people around. See, everybody there knew that this man had been crippled. And so when he said, hey, you there, stand upright and walk, he wanted everybody as far as his voice could carry to know what was happening. And what did the man do? He stood up. In fact, it doesn't say he stood up says he sprang up. Now think about that. He's never been on his legs, and he springs up to his feet, and he begins to walk. And people are amazed. This, is, this has never happened before. This is crazy. They've never seen anything like this. They are completely amazed at what has just happened. He sprang up, and he began to walk. Listen, this is not unlike many of the other miracles we've seen here in the New Testament. God does this over and over and over especially early on in the life of the church to validate the message of the apostles and the disciples he's wanting to make sure that when people hear what they say when, when they hear what they preach there's some validity to it listen I'm telling you if I had a, a friend who I had never seen walk in their entire life and, and, and all of a sudden they sprang up and began to walk I'd listen to whoever told them to get up wouldn't you? And that's what they did again. And so how did the crowd respond to this? Paul says that so everybody can hear, he wants it known. How did they react? They worshipped them. The crowds worship Barnabas and Paul. Certainly not the reaction Paul was looking for. But look what happens in 11, uh, verses 11 through 13. It says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, by the way, they gave Paul the credit, not God. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. These men are gods. That's what they were saying. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. By the way, some of your Bibles, depending on the translation, may use different names for these gods. Uh, Zeus uh, is the Greek name for the like, god of gods, the king of gods. Okay? And that's, that goes parallel with the Roman name uh, of uh, Jupiter. So your Bible might say Jupiter instead of Zeus. Uh, Hermes is the Greek name for Zeus' son, who was the messenger of the gods. Uh, And that kind of parallels with the Roman god Mercury. So if you have uh, Jupiter and Mercury instead of Zeus and Hermes, it's not a mistake. It's just they're using uh, uh, Greek names or Roman names in your Bible. So they see Paul uh, speak to this man, and through God's power, he is healed. And what do they do immediately? They say, Worship these guys. These men are gods. By the way, these men are the gods that we've been worshiping. In fact, the gods have finally come down to us. We've gone and we've worshiped in their temples. We, we've gone and we've sacrificed to them, and they finally come down to us. These men are gods. What happens next? Well, Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul admit to being mere men. Now, as I, as I had already completed my notes and completed my slides, and I was thinking about this later here in the week, I really shouldn't have said they admit to being mere men. I really should have said they insisted that they were mere men. They didn't just admit it because they didn't have any any dog in the hunt to try to be something more than mere men. They insisted it. Look at what it says in verses 14 and 15, the first part of 15. It says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. As soon as they heard that these men were saying they were gods, they begin to, to rip their clothes, and, and, and that's just a, a, a huge level of angst, it's frustration. It's,, it's why, why are you do, guys, why are you doing this? We are mere mortal men like you. In fact, what they said was... We're the same nature as you. Guys, we're not only mere men. We're sinners. We're sinners like you. We are nothing close to God's. We are men in need of a Savior. We are men in in need of someone to forgive our sins. We are the same nature as you are. Please don't call us God's. But they begin to rip their clothes just... Wanting the crowd to understand, begging them to understand that they were not gods. They were men, just like them. Then they begin to preach. And what is their story? The apostles preach about a living God. They preach about a living God. Let's look at the last half of 15 through 18. Here is their message. Now that they have been called gods and they've insisted that they aren't, here's the message. And we bring you good news. We are men just like you, but we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them they preach about a living God they say look guys uh, what you need to do uh, is not worship us but you need to repent from worshiping these dead gods these false gods that you're worshiping and turn to the one true living God there's one true living God and by the way even though you all have been kind of far from him He's been very generous to you hasn't he? He's giving you rain and giving you food. He's taking care of you even in the midst of your rejection of him. While you were somewhat ignorant in the past, he knew you and he still showed himself through nature and through his goodness to you. Wow, what a great sermon. Turn from your false gods. This is the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sinfulness. Turn toward God, the living God, the one true living God, Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in Him. He's been good to you. After this great sermon, after they heard all of this preaching, what did they want to do? Worship them. That's what they wanted to do. In fact, it says they had to restrain them. It's almost as though, uh, I wish we had a picture of this, you know, Paul and Barnabas must have gotten security? Restrain these. These guys are wanting to worship us. Get these guys out of here. Restrain them. Stop them. Don't let them rush the, the stage. Don't let them worship us. Stop them from doing that. They had, to say they had to restrain them from doing that. That was the reaction of the people. Let's go ahead and worship them anyway. What happens next? Here's how they react. Paul is stoned and left for dead. Hang on just a second. I think I have last Sunday's message up here too. All right. So look what it says here in verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, isn't this interesting? One moment they're having to restrain them from worshiping Paul and Barnabas. Uh, One minute they're saying, Guys, stop worshiping us. It's not us. Please stop worshiping us. Then, remember those towns, those cities where uh, they had already been uh, uh, beaten and persecuted Antioch and Iconium? Jews come from those cities, stir up the crowd, and immediately their response is to do what? Kill them. Or just kill them. In fact, they picked Paul because he was probably uh, um, the uh, spokesman for the group, obviously. They stirred up the crowd. Now think about it. These people, these Jews, were so incensed about the gospel... That they literally had left their homes, they'd followed them, and when they finally found him, they stirred up the crowd want, that wanted to worship them to try and get him to kill him. One verse earlier, one verse earlier, they were wanting to worship them, and now they try to kill him. Hosanna one day. Crucify the next. When serving God, don't be surprised. The masses are fickle, and they are ready to turn in an instant. Paul is beaten with stones. They suppose that he is dead, and the reason they drag him out of the city is because they don't want his smelly, rotten corpse to stink up the city. And so they drag what they think is his dead body out of the city and leave him for the dogs. But Paul's not dead. We see that Barnabas and Paul now go to Derby. Listen carefully to the words here in verse 20 and 21. But when the disciples gathered about him, Paul, he rose up and ran away no what did he do and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples so the Christians come out of the city and they surround Paul now we don't know exactly what that means uh, uh, Bible scholars differ a lot about that. They're, they're doing more supposition than anything else. Uh, did they surround him to pray for him? We don't know. Did they surround him to protect him uh, from being beaten more? We don't know. But at one point, Paul just gets up, and he goes right back to the city. Now think about this. Think about being one of those Jews that had come all the way from Antioch to come and, and persecute these Christians. And you've just taken Paul out. Uh, you, you beat him with rocks, stoned him, left him for dead, taken him out of the city, left him for dead. And you're standing by the gate talking with your friends. Yeah, uh, we'll see who comes next. You know, I'll bet Barnabas runs for cover. That Paul's dead, stinking body out there, I'll bet the birds have got him already. And Paul just walks right in. They had to be thinking to themselves, what do we have to do to get rid of this guy? I mean, what do we have to do to kill him? He just keeps coming back. He's like a bad pity. He just keeps coming back, you know? Paul, they see him. Paul's back. But, like usual, they decide, let's move on. We've done our work here. There are some disciples here. Let's move on. And the next day, they go on to Derby. They make some disciples there. Uh, that's pretty much all we know about the entire ministry of Derby, in Derby, right there. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby when they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples. They preached and had many disciples. That's about it. Don't know anything else. But look what happens next. Barnabas and Paul, they return to many previous disciples, strengthening and encouraging them. They return. Look in verses last half of 21 and 22. 22. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They said we, we went back to each city. So they start here in Antioch. They move on to city after city after city after city. We see this pattern where they they come in and they preach the gospel. They lead some people to Christ. And then they get persecuted and they move on to the next city. They've reached the end of their journey and now they're going to go back through each city. So, of course, it's going to be a few months uh, for the first city. It's going to be probably close to two years by the time they actually complete their journey. And so they've gone back to each one of these cities. And what do they do with them? They strengthen them and encourage them. They strengthen them in their faith, and they encourage them to continue in the faith. If you think about a tree, you know, a tree that has great, uh, large branches with no roots falls over. A tree with great root system with no branches dies. And so what they do is they go back to each of these cities and they say, let's spend some time with the disciples. The guys we led to Christ and the people that they've led to Christ since we've been gone, let's, let's strengthen them. Let's help the root system get stronger. Let's help them really go deep into the ground to be solid. But let's also encourage them to grow. Encourage them to, to get bigger and wider so that their influence can influence more People so they can become a better uh, witness for Christ, strengthen and encourage two very important things. And they go back to each church, uh, to the disciples, and they strengthen them in their faith and encourage them to continue in it. We also see that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders church. Look in verse 23, pretty simple. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so when they went to these cities early on, they basically just led a bunch of people to Christ. We saw that they stayed for several months in some places and discipled them, helped them to grow in their faith, helped them to understand a good doctrine of following Jesus. But they didn't set up any real hierarchy. They didn't didn't set up any kind of leadership or any kind of structure to the church. They're just a bunch of Christians kind of helping each other grow and encouraging one another and doing the one another's for each other. But when they go back, We see a new pattern of leadership taking place. They assign elders in every single church. Keep in mind, it never says elder. There is always a plurality of elders. There is never just one elder, but a group of elders who work together to lead the church. We also remember uh, uh, the office of apostle, we see that there are 13 in the New Testament. They don't go back and assign apostles to each church. Uh, The the office of apostle is not continuous. But now they go back and assign elders in each church. And every church is autonomous. What that means is that each church is its own individual uh, organization. They don't say, hey, you guys are the elders and you report to the bishop in Jerusalem. They don't do that. Each church has their elders, and those elders uh, 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 lead and and encourage and and disciple the people there. They are the leaders of that particular organization. Listen, uh, this may be news to some of you, but we are not part of a denomination. Do you know that? A denomination is a group of churches who all answer to a hierarchy, and there are many of them, Uh, Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, uh, Catholics, many of them. What that means is is, is that each church has a pastor to it, but there's somebody above him like a district supervisor or somebody like that that they answer to. And then he answers to somebody and he answers to somebody and there's some hierarchy up top so that at the very, very top there's either some board of directors or a CEO or or some kind of a, a leader of that denomination. We are part of a collective. We are part of really a convention of churches. Here's the difference. Each church is totally and completely autonomous from every other church. Our church is its own entity. Uh, our church is led by the elders uh, that have been appointed here. We don't answer to a hierarchy. There's no, no bishop, no, no person above the pastors in our church uh, that tells us what to do, or if the church stagnates, they, they switch pastors from other churches you know, to, to kind of get something going. Our church is autonomous. And we see here in the New Testament that each one of these churches was autonomous. They were not connected to the other churches, but they were led and ruled by the elders of every church. That's why we follow that New Testament model. At the end of their journey, they return and report to Antioch. Let's look at verses 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They had been sent from there. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples." So we see there that they went back through the regions of Pisidia and Pamphylia, went through the cities of Perga and Italia, and they went back to Antioch. It's interesting, isn't it? The only place they didn't go back to was the island of Cyprus. If you remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus, and his nephew, John Mark, had started the trip with them, and as soon as they got to the first place past Cyprus, John Mark bailed on him and went home. We'll, we'll see how that's significant later. But basically, they avoided going back to Cyprus. And I think, I think it was mostly because of Paul's influence. But they came back to Antioch, and they reported uh, to the church there. They gave a report that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. Weren't there some Gentiles in the church at Jerusalem? Yeah, there were a few. But remember, when the church was just first starting, when there were just a first, uh, first few believers, almost all of them were Jews. This was seen in the first weeks and months as a sect of Judaism. All, almost all of the Christians, except for a handful, were all previously Jews. And now they were continuing uh, to kind of practice Judaism with Christianity mixed in. But what Paul was saying when they got back is, hey guys, I just want you to know, God has swung open the door to the Gentiles. He has opened it wide, and they are all coming in. And so this was no longer, it's going through this transition. Remember, there are many, many transitions we're going to see through the book of Acts. This is one of them. Christianity was no longer viewed as kind of a sect of Judaism. It was seen as kind of its own thing. Because there weren't just Jews coming. There were many, many, many Gentiles. And if you see from uh, the places that uh, Paul and Barnabas went and the people that came to them, the majority of them were Gentiles. So they had a pretty successful trip. They'd been beaten five, four, five, six times, run out of every town on a rail, if they had rails back then. A uh, pretty successful mission trip. But disciples in every city. In fact, not only disciples, but disciples who had grown in their faith to the point that there were leaders that had risen up, they appointed them as leaders, and they left each one a church, its own individual entity in each one of these cities. So what are the application takeaways for us today? I think there's a couple of important ones. You know, when we look at the people, and I think when they first read this passage, You look at these people who worship Paul and Barnabas and and I think as human beings we have a tendency to go, man, what was wrong with those people? What was wrong with those people wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas? They were just kind of stupid. Who would do a thing like that? I mean, who, who would worship these men just because they did a miracle with God's help? Well... I think the first takeaway is this: make sure our source of worship is the one true living God and no one or nothing else. Listen, anything anything that we value, admire or revere more than God himself has become an idol. Did you hear that one? Say it again. Anything that we value, admire, or revere more than God has become an idol. I'm just glad that in our culture we could never fall into the trap of worshiping mere men, aren't you? Okay, so maybe we look up to mere men, but at, at least we don't idolize them, right? I mean, we don't actually call them idols. Okay, maybe we struggle with certain humans. At least we don't fall into the trap of loving things above God, right? Well, now, wait a minute. Just because we need cash to live doesn't mean we idolize things. It's, it's not like objects are a source of prestige or a person's worth, are they? Okay, perhaps we struggle some, but it's not like we actually build stone monuments to men and worship them, is it? All right, maybe we do struggle, but, but we would never give up our time with God to do other things, would we? You know, it's not like we set up giant altars and worship the entertainment God or something like that, is it? Of course, maybe along with these areas, the one that we struggle with most, the one we worship most... Each and every time we choose to do what we want over what he wants is ourself. Let's be careful. Let's be careful. Before we mock and ridicule these people for worshiping Paul and Barnabas, let's be careful that we don't have idols in our lives, too. Listen, we live in a culture that is full of idols. I don't think we bow down to them well, you know, like, like they're an idol, like we worship them as a god, but in some ways, I think more than we realize we do. Listen, watching our sports heroes and having nice things and having some level of entertainment in our life isn't necessarily wrong unless it takes away from our entire devotion being set on God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Then they have become idols. Folks, we live in a culture where we are surrounded by idols, including ourselves. Because we don't have a six-foot Buddha in our living room, we have a tendency to think this is not a problem for us. I want to challenge your thinking a little bit. I want to challenge your thinking a little bit it certainly has challenged my thinking the other takeaway I want you to come away with today is this remember that all disciples need to be strengthened and encouraged through the ministry of the local church led by elders You know, sometimes people will come to church for a while and they'll say, you know, Michael, I think we're going to leave Fellowship of Grace because we're just not, we're just not learning anything. We, we've kind of learned all we can here and, and we're going we're gonna to go somewhere else where we can learn more. We're just not, we're not getting anything out of the service. Now, the question that I usually ask them is, uh, I'm not concerned with how much you know. Have you mastered everything you know? Because frankly, folks, I haven't. I still struggle. I still do some really stupid things. But each one of us needs to have our roots go deep into the soil to be strengthened in our faith, to be immovable. And we need our branches encouraged to grow, to spread out our influence, to lead those who are all around us who don't know Christ to Jesus all disciples need to be strengthened and encouraged and by the way that happens primarily you see the pattern already here in Acts that happens primarily within the local church oh can you uh, disciple somebody at work a little bit of course you can can you encourage somebody at your work a little bit to follow Jesus of course you can but primarily that happens within the body of Christ within the local church and it's led by elders it's not it's not all done by elders Okay? Our goal is not to uh, be the ones to encourage uh, and strengthen everybody. Our goal is to grow you to the place that you strengthen and encourage one another. You, you can't just keep getting all of your meals here on Sunday mornings. You got to get them from each other during the week. Having relationships with other people where you build them up and encourage them and strengthen them. Uh, when we interact with each other, we begin, get stronger and we get encouraged to keep going. I really want to challenge you this morning to consider um, where you are in relationship to the local church, to Fellowship of Grace. And I want to encourage you to get deeper to encourage others more. I want you to really uh, uh, think about how you interact with the people in this body and how you can fulfill the role that God has given you in an even greater way. All right? Some challenging thoughts here. You know, when I go back and I, I kind of reviewed back through this whole first missionary journey, on the surface, on the surface it looks like I go to a city, a uh, city, uh, preach the gospel, some come to Christ, you get beat up, you go to the next city. And it kind of looks like that's just the whole story. But if you look back at all of these application takeaways, folks, there's some really good principles, really great principles that we've learned from God here on this first missionary journey. Paul's got two more coming up. We're gonna learn some other really cool stuff. But let's pray and ask God today to just help us as we try to follow these two. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, to have you teach us from your word and from your spirit. Father, thank you for the challenge uh, that we see in this particular part of this passage. Father, we can become very critical of others as they worship idols. But God, I have a sneaking suspicion that most of us in this room are, are pretty convicted because we realize that we have let idols sneak in where we didn't really invite them father help us to have lives that grow to the place that are strengthened to the place where our full devotion is to you our full love and our reverence is to you and you alone father help us to just master the ability to love you and to get rid of the idols in our lives that draw us away from you Father, thank you for Paul and Barnabas for their example, for the things that we've learned. And I pray, Lord, that you would not let us just increase in knowledge, but help us increase in application. Help us increase in our effectiveness. Help us really increase in being followers of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.